Hey, everybody. We're talking to Rebecca Hart today. She is an amazing person, Paralympic equestrian athlete, and one of the few people who represented our country as team captain in the Paralympic Games. You do not want to miss this conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett. I'm in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair. And more importantly, we have with us today, Rebecca Hart. She is a high-performance equestrian athlete, captain of the U.S. equestrian team. And not only that, she was really close to Thrive Studios just a few weeks ago for the debut of a documentary that she's being featured in. So welcome to the show, Rebecca. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you today. So tell us a little bit about this new documentary. You were speaking on it and part of kind of the launch. Tell us about what was going on there. Yeah, I was super excited to come back up to Tryon, North Carolina. It was the Tryon International Film Festival premiere of Paragold, which is a documentary about four para-equestrian athletes trying to make the team for the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics, filmed and produced by Ron Davis. That's awesome. And so that's, uh, so you're at a film festival. So now your film festival launches, you're a captain of the equestrian team and you do it all. You do it all. It has been a fun ride, pun intended. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your story. How did you, how did you get into writing and just the whole question? Cause that's a very niche like thing. So how did that come about and escalate to being on the Paralympic team? I was a horse crazy little girl, kind of typical, loved ponies, had the briar horses in my bedroom that I would play with, but I grew up in downtown Pittsburgh. So I had no access to real horses and my family is completely non-horsey. I uh, was coming back from a family vacation and there was a cardboard cutout sign on the side of the road that said pony rides and I started shrieking like a banshee in the back seat of my poor father's vehicle begging to pull over and he finally he was like okay okay pulled over and let me sit on that pony and I found my life passion on a shaggy black little pony and I have been doing it ever since and I have never looked back wow that's awesome so a cardboard sign in the yard on a, on a road trip has uh, some credit that um, has got you into the sport and got you going on that. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about your story as a Paralympic athlete. You've competed in many events and you're actually preparing now. What are you preparing for right now? Like where are you at in the process of the next competition? We just finished the world championships about four months ago, and we are now gearing up for the next kind of cycle. So there's a world championships in the Paralympics and they're on kind of an, a rotating every two year to four year cycle. And so this January, we are going to start getting ready for the qualifications 
for Paris 2024, uh, the Paralympics there. So it's going to be about an 18-month process with different selection events that are pre-planned by our federation that all the athletes that are looking to qualify go and compete at. And then it will come down to kind of a final selection process over the course of the next 18 months. That's incredible. So you've got the next 18 months to prepare for Paris in 2024. That would be amazing anyway, just to go to Paris and then to go and be riding. And I understand that you have a unique license. We were talking about before the show, you have this unique license where you can, you can travel for free if you want to. Yeah. So tell everybody what you can do now. So you're licensed to do what? I am a licensed airplane groom for sport horses. So basically means when we're traveling around the world, unlike having a human athlete, you just get on an airplane. We actually have to take all of our horses to these competitions all over the world. And the way you do that is you put them on an airplane, drive them out to the tarmac, you put them in what's called a pallet, basically a think horse trailer without wheels. They load up, they get forklifted into the bottom, that pallet locks into the floor, and then I am essentially their stewardess and I provide in-flight snacks and drinks. (laughs) (laughs) That is so awesome. I I didn't even know that existed. Like I didn't even, but you don't think about it, but the horses just don't appear. They have to travel. And that kind of also adds another layer of complexity. I'm sure that you're well aware of because if I'm an Olympic athlete and I'm going to go and run on a track or I'm going to go swim or whatever it is that I'm doing, it's hard enough for me to get into the, the training mode where I'm hitting at and peak. But you've got an additional layer of complexity. You've got to now get this animal to peak at the same time and travel well and, and get used to all that. That's got to be extremely difficult. Definitely some serious logistics in how early do you go before the event. You really need to know your horse on a very personal level as an individual and also as an athlete, because like a human athlete, they get jet lag, depending on where they are, if they're not as comfortable in that environment, depending on what their food situation is. We try and keep their food as consistent as possible, but grass and hay, depending on what country are you in, can vary. So you want to pay attention to the protein levels. There's the whole kind of nutritional and physical and mental aspect of keeping that horse happy as an athlete on top of keeping yourself there. And unlike a human teammate, they don't understand the importance of necessarily that event that you're doing. They don't know that it's the Olympics. So you have to kind of import to them and have that partnership with them that stay with me in this moment, be present and be here. And it's a really fascinating process because in human sport, you talk to your teammates. A horse doesn't speak English. So you have this incredible silent language that you craft with that animal. And it's such a special, unique partnership. And I don't think there's really anything else like that in the world. It's really fascinating. Ah, oh, that is awesome. I love how you talk about that with passion and you just kind of, you can tell you're just there's the art of the craft there and, and so much. We love routines at Think, Move, Thrive and the last 10%. And we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about winning routines and routines that really help us. And obviously, with the success that you've had in your career in the Olympics and world championships and all these things that you've been doing, I know that you've got some go-to routines and things that you like to do to prepare either in practice or for events. Can you tell us and share with us what routines that you use that really set the stage for you to be competitive? So I'm very systematic 
in kind of my breakdown, I like to have a plan. And of course, that plan can be fluid, but I want to have a, a general outline. And so what I do is I look at the main, say, the Paralympics. We'll just use that as an example that I know the exact date when the opening ceremony is and the exact date that I'm going to compete the very first time. And I work backwards basically every single day through the selection, all the way back through the qualification and selection procedures to know exactly what I am going to do, what my horse is going to do, and then kind of build in when you're an athlete, you want to peak at the right moment. Because you can't stay at top performance level that entire time frame because it's just physically and mentally not possible to stay that prep. So you want to buffer in that up and down kind of mental preparation and get your horse to do it at the same time. And so for me, I know my horse quite well and know that without like that month out exactly every day and we don't train hard every day he also I give him what I call field days to keep him fresh and happy and just really work to make sure that he my horse Tex is ready to trot down that center line on that really important day and it's every day even if it is a lighter training day is important and it's really as an athlete and as a professional I think in anything that you do you want to have that system in place for me. So that's just kind of what has worked for me and my horse to kind of have a daily plan and then change it as need be, but work backwards for months. It takes that long to get them to peak at the right moment. I think that's such a good point. You know, if you're leading a team or if you're leading a business, like what you've laid out there is just fantastic because it's outcome based and outcome oriented. So you're saying, this is the outcome that I want to achieve. I'm going to lay out The interesting thing with what you just described is the system that it takes to plan the outcome as best you can. And then each day you're just working that plan, but going through the system and saying, okay, we're going to travel this period of time and we're going to, you know, have extra. And also what I also loved about what you just said, which I think is fascinating. I've been doing a lot of talks on burnout lately, battling burnout. People, all kind of different industries are struggling with that. It's a cultural problem. Um, it's a societal problem right now. And I love how you say that you give your part of the process of achieving this great outcome and peaking at the right time was giving your horse field days. I love that. I think mean, that's so good because you just, it's like you can't sustain peak performance. Neither can the horse for whatever it is, 30 days, just every day, just grinding it out. You have to have some recovery time in there, some field days. And I think that's so important as you set systems in place, plans in place for teams or for organizations or business, looking at that outcome first and making sure the system that you're running, that's the part that's actually gearing you towards that. But part of that has to be recovery. I love that. That's really good. So now let's talk about your medal moments. You've recently medaled in Paralympics. And I loved how we were talking before the show. You had made a comment about sharing those medal moments. What does that mean for you sharing those medal moments with other people? You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in that moment as you're seeing your flag go up. But as an athlete, as any athlete, I don't care what sport you're doing, you are a figurehead out there on the field of play. But it is the people that are behind you that helped get you there. So it's just as much their medal as it is yours. For myself, it's so meaningful to share that medal with them. And because they have put the hours and the effort maybe not necessarily 
in the actual competition, but into you as an athlete, as a person. And for me, it makes it so much more meaningful to get to share that with them because it takes so many years and so, so much effort, so many behind the scenes hours that nobody pays attention to or recognizes. Um, They just see that tip of the iceberg when you're actually standing on the podium. So I'd love to share that with my fellow teammates and also my personal team that got me to that podium. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's so true in life that anything that we accomplish that's worthy and worthwhile is not on our own, just by ourselves in a vacuum. And I think that's why celebration and a shared celebration and a shared recognition is so important. So important because it's just so meaningful when someone recognizes your efforts, even if they're small, but recognizes your efforts in that, especially like you said, you're the figurehead, you're seeing the medal, you're seeing the flag come down for that person to say, you know, hey, I think it's really, and I would give you credit for this, a very humble mindset, which is great because you're able to bring people with you that continues to rally people around you. And I think that's so important. So living in the last 10% for sure is recognizing and having that shared celebration. I think that's awesome. Very thankful for that. So it's not all been, you know, roses and you've had some setbacks on this journey through the Olympics and and what you've done. Talk about some of those setbacks. And and obviously you had a funny story in Greece, but, but let's talk about some setbacks and how that made you a better athlete. This is actually something I'm quite passionate about. And I'm going to actually go all the way back kind of before I found horses, if you're all right with that, because as a disabled person and as a disabled child, I had what they, it's a documented thing called magic thinking that like, if you put on, I wasn't happy that I was disabled at that time. I'm perfectly comfortable with myself now, but it took a lot of effort to get there. As a kid, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like everyone else. That seemed like the end goal to me. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be unusual. And So I tried all the typical little girl things. I tried gymnastics. I tried dancing. I thought as a kid that if I put on kind of that uniform, that leotard, that dance leotard, that all of a sudden I would be able to dance like everyone else and that my disability would go away. The world beats that out of you pretty quickly and you realize that's not how it works. But when I sat on the back of a horse, I didn't need my legs to work like everyone else. That horse, as long as I could figure out a way to communicate with them, allowed me to perform at the level that I wanted to. It was a light bulb moment for me in my life where basically I was able to take all of the anger and the hatred that I had toward my disability and myself in that moment, which is a dark place to be, and turn it into a passion for something and really set my life on a whole new course and allow me to accept my disability and really come to terms with it, which I think was such a catalyst for the rest of my life to be able to achieve things. So those horses gave that to me. So that kind of coming to terms with my own disability was the first major setback. Getting to an Olympic team has a ton of others just in the athletic trials and tribulations as you have growing from a newbie amateur athlete to that elite performance level. Having the right horse, losing the ride on a horse if you don't own that horse having to start up a new partnership, just the sheer financial expense of trying to fly horses back and forth around the country. All of those things can make this equestrian quite difficult in it. And for me, it was just this, I didn't come from a horse family and not from an incredible financial means to be able to just do it. 
kind of piecemealed it together. And it was amazing to look back, you know, now that I've been doing it successfully, like how I got there. And I kind of go, wow, my younger self would have never believed I would have made it to this stage. It's quite fun to kind of reflect and look back on that path. That's so amazing. So I love your mindset and your approach on that and your discovery. And thanks for being open and transparent about your your journey in that, because I could totally, it's just very encouraging because I think there's a lot of people out there. There may be some with a disability and there may be some that maybe don't have a physical disability other than the way they think, you know, and I think that the way that you were thinking through that and your journey of thought from, hey, I need to be and try to do and fit in and be like everybody else to, hey, I've found work, I've found purpose, and I've got this passion now that really doesn't have to do with what I'm used to seeing as normal. It's more for me. Like, this is who I'm made to be. This is what I'm made to do. And just finding that and being okay with that, being different than what you originally said and said, like, no, no, that's not, that's not me. This is me and this is who I am. Just gives you that freedom. And you can just feel it. Like, when you're talking, you just feel this freedom because you put down the stigmas or what you felt like society was saying you should be. And you said, look, this is who I am, this is who I've made to be. And you're passionate about it. And I loved how you talked about taking that anger and turn it into passion. I think that's such an encouraging aspect of our work. So there's so many people that, you know, have a craft and it may not be that you're on an Olympic stage, but you have a craft. It's your gift to the world. And I think that that is when we see it at its best, when it gives us this purpose to give of ourselves to the world. I think that's just so great. And I love to hear you talk through that and those setbacks as how it's changed you as a person. It's really good. So tell us about when you were going through and you were getting more into the equestrian field and you were developing as an athlete in that performance, what's the process that you went through to make the Olympic team? And like, at what point did that seed get planted in your mind? Like, I think I want to go after the Olympics. I mean, there's a lot of people that like ponies and a lot of people that ride horses, but that's a whole different deal than going and being the captain of the Olympic team. So tell us kind of how that triggered happened. That was actually, my mom had found an article in, it's a magazine called Practical Horsemen about the 1996 Paralympic team that competed at Atlanta. That was actually the first time that equestrian was included in the Paralympics. And she said, you should take a look at this. And I originally wasn't interested because I was a jumper at that time. And the only discipline that they had included in the Paralympics was dressage, which is, think of it like a gymnastic. Dressage is kind of gymnastics for horses. You have a preset routine that you perform in front of a panel of judges and then are scored on how well you execute that. I thought that wasn't going to be particularly the venue that I wanted to go, but I went down. They offered a kind of a coaching, mentoring, mentorship at the show in Atlanta, Georgia. I went down and I tried it and I got to sit on my first dressage horse and I went, oh my gosh, this is fascinating because I had never had that level of communication with a horse before. And then trying to figure out what it's called is catch riding, because at that point, you didn't have to own your own horse to compete on the international level. You showed up as an athlete. And then your federation would draw the horses that they had kind of pulled from the resources around that competition. People would donate their horses. You had 
probably max of three hours to kind of get to know each other. And then you competed, which was a, like, I look back at, at it now, I've been competing the same horse for six years and I still am getting to know him and know his reactions. So to be able to go to an international event and you have three hours to kind of figure each other out on top of that horse has probably been ridden most of its life by an able-bodied rider to then add the question mark of how is it going to respond to my disability? It was a fascinating process. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. The leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. It seems like that whole process would be very difficult and make the results sporadic because it's not about the horse may be skillful. You may be skillful. You put the two together. I don't know. Like what happens? You just don't know. You don't know the horse. The horse doesn't know you. And that's the same for all the other riders. So it just seems like almost like you're rolling. Everybody just rolls the dice and it's like whichever combination kind of feels right that day for after three hours is the ones that's going to have the advantage. Is that kind of how it went? That is exactly how it went. So it wasn't always necessarily the best for sport. And it was in 2004 that they switched that rule and they basically made it own horse competition. And that was the catalyst that just skyrocketed the quality of the sport itself into like the next stratosphere, because you actually could. All those things that you just said about what kind of horse did you get? What is the talent of that horse? You then as an athlete, were able to go find the partner that worked for you and that worked for your disability. All of those aspects are so incredibly important. Do you want to have, because every horse's personality also plays into their performance. I personally, as a rider, enjoy to have a slightly hotter horse, meaning that they're more hotter in horse kind of dialogue is that they are more self-motivated. They're more goy. And the reason I want that is because I have no leg to be able to help create energy on that horse. So I want to be able to contain energy rather than create energy. I find that it just works better for my own partnership with that horse. And now you have time to put your performance together and your routines together in a much more professional level because you also have a freestyle which is set to music that needs to match the tempo of your horse's gait and if you didn't know what horse you were riding how do you match the tempo of the music so there's there were so many aspects that made it super challenging that when it switched to own it has just been so much growth 
and improvement. And even after, like I've had techs and we've competed in many, many major championships together, I still feel like every time I go down center line, we learn something new about each other and can make a better performance. So it's super exciting to kind of have watched it develop. That's so cool that you've seen that progression. All right, so I have to make a confession to you. I am, I've ridden horses before, but my first experience riding a horse was not great. It was like I was a teenager. We went on this trip. It was a bunch of teenagers. We ended up in Tennessee. It was on some weekend retreat thing, and they took us to this place that was supposed to go riding horses and, you know, on a trail, and you follow people around. It's the first time I'd ever got on a horse, and they're bringing out these majestic stallions. I mean, they were just huge, amazing horses, and this person gets this and this. And I don't know if they just did it to punk me or what, but they brought my horse out, and its name, if it tells you anything about the horse, its name was Q-Tip. And so you know you're in trouble when you get assigned the horse named Q-Tip at the back of the line. So we get on the horse and it's like getting too close to the horse in front of it. And then the horse in front of it kicks it in the face and then it goes off the trail. And my feet are like almost dragging the ground. It was, it was like, come on, Q-Tip, you just got to get me to the finish line. And so it was a pretty rough ride. But me and Q-Tip, we did finish the race. But I can't imagine... Because they were like, if you want to go, you just click your heels at the bottom, just do that. And you feel like you have a certain feel with the horse, with everything. How do you, what are the adjustments that you have to make? Like you talked about a system being very deliberate earlier. Is there a system or process? Because you had talked about getting to know your horse and then you riding it differently. How have you been able to adapt the horse and yourself to do what you do? That's actually a really awesome question because most people think, about riding horses, they use their arms and their hands with the reins and their legs to cue the horse to go faster. For myself, and everyone has their own system in paraequestrian, for me, I can't use my legs at all. So I have to create a new language and then teach that horse that language because most of the horses that I have are older and have already been trained by an able-bodied rider. So I like to give myself about six months before a competition and about a full year for a major competition to really get to know a new horse. For example, I just recently purchased a new young horse that we're trying to bring along and we're kind of aiming him for Paris. And for me, that language and dialogue that I create with those horses is a series of weight shifts and vocal cues along with rain aid. So a horse is very, very sensitive. They can feel a fly land on them. So you can shift your weight and talk to them by doing that. You're sitting on their back, so they have to balance what is on top of them. So if I shift slightly to the left or the right, that horse then knows they need to go left or right. And then I use my voice where someone would necessarily use a leg aid, like a squeeze to tell that horse to go faster or slower. I can't do that. So I will use a series of clicks, what we call like clucking in equestrian. I teach them different noises to mean each date. And I try and get off like the traditional like, which is the kind of classic go faster in horse world. So I use a pop. So I go, which is basically shift up to the next gate and then like a kind of an undertone purr to ask them to slow down. In addition to you contract your abs and stop following with your own body that tells them to slow down. That's what hooked me with dressage actually is how much dialogue you can actually have with a 1200 pound animal and the amazingly athletic feats that you can get them to do. It does take a lot of repetition and praise and reward. So I like to give myself 
that time frame to kind of teach them my language. I needed your help when I was riding Q-tip through the mountains of Tennessee. There's no doubt you could have helped me. I don't know if there was a pop or a click or anything that would have actually helped me that day with the Q-tip, but we did make it. But that, that is so fascinating, the level. You just don't think about that in terms of watch a lot of horse events because of the equestrian centers. We go up to the International Equestrian Center quite a few times a year just to see because, you know, like you've brought in horses and you've seen and competed against horses all over the world. And and other riders all over the world. We just enjoy that and being a part of this community. It's interesting to look at it. I don't think I'll look at it the same because I look at it to this point. I've looked at it mostly from the standpoint of the horse. Like, is the horse going to jump over this? Is he going to knock the bar down? Or is he going to walk the right way? But now the way you describe it, it's almost like it's almost like the ability for the horse and you to communicate at a very, very tight, intimate, nuanced level and the ability for the horse and you to kind of become one and just do this kind of dance thing. It's just amazing to think about that and the, and the level of complexity that you have to go through to do that. I just think that's so interesting too, because I think it goes also to organizations and teams. I think when you live in the last 10%, if you want to create a culture that's high performing in your organization or team, I think you've got to get outside of the mindset that, everyone should communicate either with you or you should communicate to everyone the same way in the same tactics. I think that you're adapting your communication style to you and your horse. So if you have a horse that likes this or that and you're finding what works for you, and if you want to get a high-performing team and you're, you're managing a high-performing team or an organization, I think adapting that communication style to your team, your outcome is success. Not that everybody communicates with you the same way necessarily. And then we've got to have systems and processes. But I do think on an individual level, some people like really direct feedback. Some people would melt with really harsh direct feedback. And so understanding your team like you did, it takes six months to a year to get to know that horse. I think so many people miss that when they're leading teams and organizations. They miss the ability to really get to know your people really get to know your people so that you know what makes them tick. And hopefully if you have, if you're working on a high performing team, you've got a manager, you would understand your manager or leader that you would understand what makes them tick. So you can do the dance, you know, you can be successful and high performing on that. So I, I love that. I love that. So tell us a little bit about, so now we've got your expertise in that realm, your first experience. You told us the first time you kind of was exposed to it in Atlanta. But then there was another Olympics that you had an interesting experience. You, you had not made the team, but you had, I think you were an alternate. Is that right? Tell us about that experience and how that elevated your game. That was the 2004 Paralympics in Athens. And I had not made the team. I was still a pretty ranked newbie in 2004. So to make the alternate was still pretty spectacular, but they offered me this amazing opportunity to be a traveling alternate and get to go and experience without the pressure of having to compete, which was really special. We were going to dinner and we had gotten lost. Our car had essentially broken down on the side of the road. We're sitting in this car. I was with another athlete and her parents, about four guys with pretty big guns come and walk and kind of surround this vehicle. And it was one of those moments where you're like, this is going to either be 100% fine or it's going to end really badly. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
So we kind of tentatively roll down that window and go, hello. <laughs> and it ended up being great. They took us to a local restaurant, towed the car there, helped us. We ordered, we had an amazing dinner and got back on the road. Then it was in that moment of really, I got to watch my friends compete and be incredibly successful. And I realized that I needed to up my game if I wanted to do that as well. And I went home from that experience and completely revamped my system, my training methods of how I was going to do that. That's kind of when I started backtracking. I had realized that I had not prepared adequately to get to the selection trials and get to the competition and not even remotely prepared enough to actually compete on the Olympic level. So that's when that kind of system of backtracking and planning when I was going to peak and what competitions I was going to do strategically to get myself and my horse ready for that next game. So it was a broken down car on the side of the road and some good Greek food that made me change my path. (laughs) That's such a great story. You know, when you're outside of your normal and natural environment, it's already, you're kind of like, oh man, but then to see people walking up with large guns, that is definitely unnerving for sure. That's an awesome story. I think you just spoke to like what gets to the heart of why the last 10% podcast exists and, and a lot of the other things we do at Think We Thrive. If you want to live in that last 10%, which you obviously are in the last 1%, you're living in the top 1%. But if you want to live in the last 10%, really your example just showcases again, your level of openness and humility is just tremendous because you're not, you went into that and you weren't like, well, you know, next year I'm going to be better than all these people. And, you know, I'm going to be, you were like, I'm looking at them with great respect. I'm open to seeing how hard they prepare all the work that they put in. I want to be a part of this. If I want to be a part of this, I need to go back and up my game. And I think that response that you made in that moment was so good. And obviously it's paid off in spades. If you're running an organization or a team, we are doing the last 10% podcast for you so that you can get insights for you and for your team members when you want to look out. And I would say outside of just this podcast, we're bringing on amazing guests so that gives you insight into what other people are doing, some ideas and how people are managing their their last 10% so that you can take those back and assimilate them for your team or organization. I think that you've got to have an openness about you that would be open to that. So if you're going to go and like what you did, you benchmarked all these other athletes there and said, look, I'm looking around and seeing what they're doing. And I'm going to do that too. That's such a fantastic example. If you want to have a high performing team or high performing organization, I think one of the questions you've got to ask yourself is who are you looking at that's better than you, whether it's a person or a company, who are you looking at that's better than you? And what are you changing to improve deliberately, intentionally? What are you doing to do that? And if you can't answer one of those questions, I think that's tough. And I think that's a challenge that you should definitely think about if you're a listener. You've made it to the top and you're continuing to prepare for Paris. We're excited. We'll be cheering for you. Maybe we'll have, we'll have you on maybe the last 10% again after you go to Paris to hear your experience on that as well. But one of the things that you're passionate about is overcoming the stigma of disability. And one of the ways that we were talking about before the show is that you give back by, by going and helping other people. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience in that giving back and then your message to people that you're working with. Absolutely. So 
that actually is so rewarding for me. And it doesn't always have to be something sport related. It can be just in life in general. I remember feeling so hopeless and so angry as a child with a disability and not knowing where to go and not really always wanting to talk to, you know, maybe the adults around me. I wanted to have somebody my own age or younger or slightly older that I could kind of lean on and and hear their experiences. So I've really enjoyed getting to go and talking to younger kids with disabilities and really just anyone in general, letting them realize that the world so often wants us to kind of stay in our lane and stay on the stereotypical normal. And what I want them to try and embrace, I want you to realize that it's the point when the unusual becomes normal, that extraordinary things can happen. We're all have something about us that is different. And that I think is where we get our strengths and our power, getting people to realize that and embrace that. That's when as a society as a whole, we are going to become so much stronger and so much more connected to realize that it is things that separate us that can actually bring us closer and make us stronger. I love that. I love that message. That's so good. When the unusual things become normal, extraordinary things can happen. I love that because it's like you're saying, you're not just saying, this is my uniqueness. You're embracing that and saying, no, this is my new normal. This uniqueness is now I'm resting in that, you know, that being the new normal or my normal. It just opens you up. It just opens you up to the world. You don't have to be, like you said, if you were, if you were approaching things with anger, then it would make it hard for you to connect with other people because you'd be closed off or you'd be bitter or mad. And just by taking that in, you have such a, a great spirit about you and just such openness about you it just opens that up. I think you're exactly right. I think that people, if you want to live in the last 10%, you know, one of the things that I think that your mindset shift early in life has shown is just that you have to be and you have to continually be open to who you are and your uniqueness and bringing that to bear on the world versus trying to be in somebody else's shoes or live somebody else's life or some other way or fit in a box. You know, I think that's just a, I think that's a fantastic message. That's so good. Rebecca, this has been just such a pleasure. I'm just so thankful that we could get you on the show. I'm so thankful for all your work. Thank you for representing our country. In fact, we were talking and you ha- you're wearing your USA official practice outfit. Why don't you share with our listeners how they can get in contact with you if they want to reach out and wish you luck in Paris or maybe even have you come out and speak to their group organization. That would be amazing. So you can find me on social media, Instagram. My handles are at Rebecca Hart 136. Awesome. Awesome. All right. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So if you want to reach out and connect with Rebecca, you can do that. Go into the show notes and you'll see those in there as well. Thank you for being on the show and, and thank you for sharing your story and good luck as you get ready and prepare for Paris. We'll be cheering you on. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today 
Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.